And speaking of fish, let's open to John, uh, chapter 21, and we'll start at verse 1. Our gospel reading says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Yet just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, um, we thank you again for your revelation, for your opening our eyes to the truth of who you are. God, would you use your word again this morning to open our eyes to who you are and who you're calling us to be. Would you send your spirit, Lord, that we might be empowered to live, to know, to love one another and to love this world as you love it. In your name, amen. Well, um, last week, Pastor Cody uh, talked quite a bit about Thomas um, and this sort of resurrection of Jesus. Oh, oh yeah, let's see if, uh, let me turn this on, see if it's, if it's working here. I know we're like going back, we're going back, hey, oh, maybe I have it. My, oh, don't look at that yet. Go back. There we go. All right. Now am I in control? You sure? Hey, okay, cool. Um, so, so Pastor Cody talked about Thomas and the, um, the revelation of Jesus to Thomas after he's been raised from the dead and the interaction of sort of doubt and faith. And um, I remember really taking away this sort of interplay between what we believe internally and how we act externally, right? And, and this which goes first? <laughs> we have a picture of what goes first, that we come to believe and then we act, but that's just not the case for so many of us. A lot of times, we actually act in faith before we actually believe. We act in faith before our internal belief catches up. And so there's something, there's something interesting going on there. But this week, we, see, we get these three all really powerful um, texts that deserve probably a week of sermons on their own. Paul's on the road to Damascus being thrown off his horse into the ground when he encounters the risen Christ. 
right? This is the moment. This is why Paul can call himself a disciple because he's or an apostle rather, because he has seen the Lord, right? This is not just a vision. He's seen something bodily. Um, and then we've got John's revelation in, in chapter 5, this miraculous moment where he has seen the risen Lord on the island of Patmos, and now he gets this vision into heaven, it says. And as he looks into heaven in chapter 4, there's this, there's this view of the throne, the center of all creation, the one who holds it all together. And there's a rainbow around it, and it looks like, <coughs> like there's all kinds of Precious stones and everything, which is just a way of talking about the light, right? The, the things that these precious stones, these barrels and jasper and rubies and carnelian and emeralds, all that they would do with the light, that they would just take what we see as normal white light and break it up into a million pieces and reflect it and reflect it. Re <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> refract it and reflect it. Reflect and reflect. Okay. Uh, you try standing up here and saying that. Okay. Then uh, they would take this stuff and they would just break it up. And, and the beauty of that moment to look at the very throne of heaven. But in chapter 5 of Revelation, John doesn't see the one who is seated on the throne. He sees instead all of the people who are around, the four beasts that we've already met in Ezekiel, Daniel, things like that. And then he sees the 24 elders who constantly worship before the Lord, and then in their midst sees this lamb who is slain revealed. Finally, we get a much more um, pedestrian text in John 21. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the one who is revealed and risen, the one who knocks people like Saul of, of who on his way to Damascus knocks them into the ground and makes them blind, and, and the one who is the lamb that was slain, who sounds like a lion and looks like a lamb, and we'll get to all of that. But this Jesus shows up on the shore cooking breakfast, <laughs> making fish and bread over a charcoal fire. Right? So these three texts, all of them just rich, packed, full. And the church, yes, Debbie, Fields, where'd you go? There we go. Clyde, you got to move to the side so I can see Debbie. Okay, De Debbie said yes. This, normally we say Old Testament reading, but in this Easter season we read from Acts as kind of the history of the people of God. It's like that Old Testament comes forward into the New, right? So that's why we have these Acts readings. But in all of these texts, we see the resurrected Lord. And they reveal to us, you put them together, they reveal this really surprising truth. The conviction of the church and the conviction of Scripture reveals this very surprising truth. That as Jesus is after his resurrection, we have the same to look forward to when we're made a part of him by faith. As Jesus is after his resurrection, we have the same to look forward to. And this is the missing half of so many of our faith. This is the missing half of so many people's devotion, commitment, knowledge, understanding of who Jesus is and the life to which they've been called. So many of us have this, this sense, this incredibly profound sense that Jesus died for our sins. Right? Go open up a hymnal. Look for hymns about the blood. We love the blood. Right? There was a fountain 
filled with blood. His blood flowed from Emmanuel's veins. I mean, like, we love the blood because there's this sense that this is the moment where everything changed for me, where I was a wretch, and now because I'm washed in the blood, now I'm clean, right? And that's good and wonderful, and let's embrace it and lean into it. But the missing half of so many people's faith is that's not the end of the story. We say about resurrection so often that it's just the way that God proves what he did on the cross was real. As though the resurrection is but it's just a way for God to kind of have to prove a point. You see why that's a little anemic? Why that lacks a little bit of punch and power? And it doesn't quite get at what the New Testament really wants to say which is we're not just a people of the cross. We're a people of the empty tomb. And we, if we have died with Christ in his death, we have also been raised with him in his resurrection. If we share in his sufferings, we also share in his glory. That if we share in the forgiveness that happens at the cross, we, we're also incorporated into his resurrection body. And that's a wild thing to think about. That our bodies that get sick, that break down, right? It's not always just up and to the right with our bodies. Somewhere around my age, you start to peak. And then it's just slowly, like, it's, it's like this slow tumble into the grave, right? Just sliding, 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 right? I mean, that's what I'm told. <laughs> I don't, I don't recover quite as, as well, you know, well, anyway, yeah. Our bodies break down, and yet what Scripture tells us is we are incorporated into Christ's body. But it's okay, you're in good company, right? Peter didn't recognize this either. And so the cycle of these three texts, okay, this is actually the stoning of Stephen, but this guy right up here holding everybody's coats, that's Paul. Right, Stephen, the first martyr, a follower of Jesus, not, a, not one of the twelve, but a follower of Jesus, dies, he gets crushed by this big old rock right here, sees into heaven right at the moment, but this is Paul who, interestingly, is also looking up into the throne room of heaven. But what, what we know about Paul at this point in his life is that he's unfriendly to the gospel, that he's unfriendly to Christians. Right? In fact, he's actively opposing the good news of Jesus Christ trying to murder, arrest, and stamp out believers in Jesus. So he's on his way to Damascus, we know that. John tells us, he goes into heaven, and the problem that he sees in heaven, he's seen the risen Christ and kind of gotten these letters to the churches, but then he's looking into heaven and he sees in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne a scroll. Some, some places will depict it as a book. And the scroll has seven seals, See, one, two, three, four, five. Yep, they got it right. Seven seals. And you can't read what's in the scroll. You can't, this is the revelation. You can't read the revelation um, until those seals are broken. Right? And so, so he's got this unknown. He's looking into the center of the world. And he's got this unknown. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can do it? I see cherubim and seraphim and the 24 elders and all of these people bowing down and worshiping, but who can actually open the scroll? Who can tell me the truth, the thing 
that I need to know. And finally, Peter, that little guy, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and in fact, he's already seen Jesus twice. He saw him the first time he walked in their locked doors and showed him the holes in his hands and in his side. He saw him the second time when Thomas was finally with him. And then he still doesn't know what to do. Peter lives with this kind of uncertainty. There's this cycle. Paul has data about the Lord, but he rejects Jesus. John has data, kind of understanding about heaven, but he can't really imagine the truth. Peter has the data of the resurrection, but he can't figure out how to live it. So he just does what he's always done and goes fishing. I mean, when in doubt, <laughs> get a little win, right? <laughs> do the thing you know you can do. Peter knows he can fish. But all three of these guys, as they move along, they go from unfriendly, unknown, and uncertain, and they meet this new sort of, they get this new information, this new organizing principle for where they are. Paul discovers that Jesus, who he's been opposing, really is the Lord and the Messiah. He's on his way to Damascus, and he's knocked off his horse. John discovers that the lamb who was slain, who is at the center of the creation and all of history, discovers that he is worthy. There's Paul seeing the risen Lord, and here's the lamb. In this case, it's a book with those seven seals on it. Peter knows. Let's see what's next here. Okay. Yeah, Paul is, or Peter is, Paul is humbled. And uh, so here's the funny thing about the, the lamb. I don't know if you picked it up in the Revelation reading. It tells you that the lamb actually has seven eyes and seven horns. <laughs> Good luck finding pictures of the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. It's really weird to draw. Um, and so you have to, I had to go in and add those. All right. So, but it tells us that this lamb with seven eyes and seven horns is also a lamb who is, but, what? No, not worthy yet. Slain, right? Somebody said it. This is, the, this is already a slaughtered lamb. It's not even like the cute lamb who's running around the fields right now. This is a lamb that already has like the big wound, the gash across its chest, and you're looking at the thing like, that should not be walking. Okay, this thing has already been sacrificed. It bears the marks of sacrifice. And yet it's that lamb that is worthy. It's that lamb that deserves to open the book. Strange, right? Oh, no. No. No, Josh, let me, <laughs> let me do it. All right, here we go. Peter's out. Peter's out working on the lake. He knows that Jesus is raised, right? And he interacts with him. Throw your nets on the right side. Oh, we've been throwing our nets on the wrong side this whole time, right? Who would have thought of that? So they throw it, and it's exactly what Pe the way that Peter interacted with the Lord when he was called to be a disciple, right? Jesus becomes familiar to him again. So they go from having this data, right, Uncert or unfriendly, unknown, uncertain. They become 
people who encounter Jesus in his revelation, he's revealed to them in a new way, in a way that they didn't know. And so then what they have to do is respond. Yes, boss. Um, they, they have to respond to the Lord in some way. And so you see Paul be humbled. You see John worship. You see Peter jump into the water, right? Which I always love that scene because what it tells you Peter does, he's stripped down for work, meaning he's like t- taken off his cloak. He's probably just got like his tunic tied around his waist because he's like a fisherman, right? So he's just out there working and pulling and he gets hot. So instead, he puts on his cloak so that he can jump into the water, right? He, he like puts on essentially his winter coat, the heaviest thing that he owns, so that he can jump into the water and swim to the Lord. It's always just sort of funny, right? But then all of these guys, they meet the Lord in Revelation. Paul is healed. John worships. They haul in the fish. Paul actually gets baptized too, which I love. Can we back it up? And the Lord invites them, after their response, into a new way of life, right? When Paul is baptized, he doesn't come out of that baptism the same. When John worships, he doesn't come out of that worship the same. When the disciples, including Peter, eat around that fire with Jesus, when they let him feed them, they don't come out of that meal the same. The Lord invites them into this new way of living. And so many of us are on this spectrum. I mean, this is the journey of faith for everybody. Maybe we've got data about who Jesus is, right? Maybe we're even willing to admit that that data is true, that he was born somewhere in the Bethlehem region, somewhere around 0 A.D., right? Maybe we're willing to admit that, yes, there was something different about this guy, that he might have been something like divine, that the people who followed him lived with a sort of power and efficacy that other people didn't have, that there was something unique about his murder by the Romans, that there was something kind of strange about the fact that all of these people who saw him die all of a sudden said he was alive. Maybe we have all of this data, right? Maybe we've got data about what he's done with people close to us, people in our family, prayers that we've seen answered, people whose lives we've seen committed to the Lord, and we've just seen them be different. But we don't know what to do with it, right? It's just sort of random, unconnected dots. Lots of our unbelieving neighbors and friends and family are at the data stage. Plenty of our own kids and maybe even some of us get stuck at kind of this information stage where they could say, yes, Jesus died on the cross, and and that actually means something. That means that I'm forgiven. Yes, Jesus was raised from the dead, and that proves that his crucifixion actually meant something, that it really was divine. There's something different about that. But the bulk of us, I think, get stuck, actually, if we're thinking data, information, take it up a level, we've got knowledge. 
most believers that I've encountered are kind of at the knowledge place. Where we've got the data and we sort of interpreted it into information and then we sort of take that into knowledge and we know more or less, okay, because this stuff has happened, it means that I'm supposed to live a certain way. It means that because I've come to Jesus and maybe I've even experienced him and I've felt forgiven and I've felt the freedom of what it is to live in faith, now I've got this accountability. Now I've got this responsibility. Maybe it's to belong to a group of people who love the Lord, a church. Right? Maybe it's to serve in my community. Maybe the knowledge I have is that I really ought to be paying attention to more than just the bottom line in my life. It's not just about sort of the money I make or the comfort I'm able to live with, but it's about service and love and loving God and loving neighbor. And maybe I've even pushed that into living a life of prayer or study of the scripture. I've discovered these things. I mean, there's so much knowledge that we can gain. There's another level, another thing going on at that very top. Wisdom. Wisdom. Do we live a life of wisdom? If we've taken the news that we have about Jesus, we've transferred that into some sort of information, we've processed it into some kind of knowledge, but have we taken that into living a life of wisdom? Well, what's the difference? This is the way that I can think about it. Um, I knew a guy named John when I, the previous church that we pastored there was a, um, a guy named John who lived there. He, he, they told me, you know, he lives up in this neighborhood up in the hills. He was in his 90s. He's a World War II vet. Um, he's not alive anymore. But I went and visited John. I'd go sit with him and he'd get me a Sprite and we'd just sort of talk in his living room for a little while. And before long, he kind of pointed to the house around him. Actually, if you can go to that next slide, I'll be humbled here, Josh. <laughs> um, there's one or two. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this is the house that he lived in. I found it on Zillow this morning. Uh, not that it's for sale, but the, the pictures were still up because it sold a couple years ago. So this is the house he lived in. Um, and he told me, I, I actually built this house. Um, and the only he said the only math he knew was the Pythagorean theorem, right? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. <laughs> And what it allowed him to do is figure out the angles that he should cut things at. <laughs> and that's what I would call practical wisdom, right? That's kind of having data and information and knowledge, but then it's also knowing I don't need to know quadratic equations in order to build a house, right? Like, I don't need to, ha I don't need to calculate how fast to swing a bat in order to hit a ball in order to build a house. I can just, I have the thing that I need, and I can transfer that into the thing that I want to do. I can go from the knowledge to the wisdom. And, and this is kind of the thing that we've got to do as the church. I mean, Lois has been, importantly, pushing us to meet together for Sunday school, right? 9.15, we've got four or five of them going on. We meet for youth group and, and children's stuff in the middle of the week. I mean, things are going on, and, and we can go to that, and it can be a data thing, it can be a knowledge thing, it can be an information thing, or we can allow those places that we sit and learn to become something that presses us into a life 
and wisdom. Being somebody like John who can take a lot of practical information, who can take a lot of knowledge about how to be in the world and turn that into a house that he uses to put a roof over his own head and his wife's. Where you take that knowledge you have and it makes a difference in the world. These are the kind of people who can figure out any engine. Just give them enough time and they'll figure out how it works. Right? I've known people who can figure out and understand any relationship, which is a lot more complicated than an engine or a house. But if you give them the time, and it doesn't mean that they have an education. It doesn't mean that they're masters in whatever and are professional counselors. It just means that they have people who have paid attention and who have carefully tried to work out the implications of Jesus' love for the world and the people around them. So the question I've been wrestling this week is, do we value this kind of practical wisdom? Do we as a church put a value on the sort of wisdom of the soul? That says, I know that one day, as I look around me, all of these people here, there's a pretty good chance they're going to be raised from the dead. There's a pretty good chance that the people around us are going to be with us in heaven. There's a pretty good chance that as we gather around the throne to worship the lamb who was slain, who sounds like a lion but looks like a lamb, the one who opens the seals, the one who unrolls the scroll, the one who tells us the truth about the world, who is worthy, 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 there's a pretty good chance that these people are going to be there with me. And so how do I live my life in such a way that that life is going to be more comfortable. You see what I'm saying? If I build up offense, if I build up resentment, if I'm storing up brokenness while I'm on earth, I imagine that in some way that might make heaven a little uncomfortable. If we live with this kind of practical wisdom of the soul, if we understand that we need a resurrection wisdom, then we begin to live with conviction about a whole lot of other things. I mean, pick your political issue. Doesn't matter which one, just pick one. Don't say it out loud. And think about how the fact of resurrection makes a difference for how you approach that issue. Think about how the fact of Jesus' coming again and raising all who believe in him and incorporated into him, regardless of what party they're a part of, regardless of what country they're from, regardless of who they support or how they support him, the fact that they are going to be raised in Christ and live forever with him, how does that change the way that you live? How does it change the way that you treat your neighbor? Think about the big things that you come across in your life. Should I go to college or should I start working? Should I marry or not? How do I order good choices in a world when that world encourages exhaustion and anxiety? The life of resurrection tells us we get to make choices in a different way. We get to live with a different sort of wisdom. I know and I trust 
and I believe that I can be more generous with the life that I've been given because my life ultimately is not my own. It's the life that Jesus has given me. So, this resurrection life, oftentimes we struggle with exactly what it means. Let's see. All right, let's play this little clip, which maybe you'll recognize. From <laughs> you guys prepared one of these? <laughs> sure, Superman. It is Superman, isn't it? Are you kidding us? That's... It didn't, didn't you see us fly out of the sky? I was blind. I was blind. We're the only Superman who can fly. This is Superman. <laughs> Just right. Okay. <laughs> so Superman, Christopher Reeves, comes down and lands in a coal mine and is talking to these guys. Can you spare one of these? Sure, Superman, right? Picks up a piece of coal <laughs> and squishes it in his hand, turns it into a diamond. I also learned this week, um, you can't do that, right? Not only are none of you as strong as Superman, coal is not the same thing as diamonds, but let's pretend they are for the point. <laughs> Our lives... <laughs> And our bodies, what is, the question is, what is a resurrection life? Our lives and our bodies are, in so many ways, pressed coal that turns into something precious, pressed through the suffering of Jesus' cross, that turns into something precious in his resurrection. Scripture tells us that on that day we will have a body Rather than concealing the soul, we'll have a body that reveals the soul. So this creates something else for us. What kind of people are we going to be? How will we live? I want to invite you to worship Christ today as an act of practical wisdom. To worship Christ as a way of saying, I know all of these things about you, but I need that knowledge to get elevated into something else. I need to contemplate you. I need to sit with you. I need to allow you to penetrate my very expectations and even to show up in my body in a different kind of way. To show up in my life in a different kind of way. I want to invite you as we come to the table to contemplate Christ in this way that lets him wake up your soul. That there's some part of you that is sleeping or dead that invites Jesus in to say, Lord, I don't know what it is that you need from me. If you need to show up to me like I'm walking down this road to Damascus and knock me off my horse, or Lord, if, if I need to see into heaven to be able to understand who it is that you've called me to be today, or Lord, do I just need to sort of sit here and let you feed me? In fact, I think that's where most of us probably are. But we need to slow down and, like the disciples, allow Jesus to feed us. We need to allow him to build in us the mind of Christ. Let's go to that last. Let's see. There we go. There we go. These are John's words from the boat. And he notices the Lord on the shore. It is the Lord. I wonder what might happen this morning 
We worship with those hearts, with those words in our minds. That this really is the Lord. This really is the one who loves us. This really is the one who has saved us. This is the one who can feed us, even the parts of us that are starving. So I'm going to ask Pastor Cody to come, and Pete, would you come and, and play for us? As, there he is. As we come to the table, before I do that, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, in your mercy and in your goodness, you have made yourself known to us. You've brought us from being a people who are separated and have a disconnected kind of knowledge and relationship with you, Lord, and you've incorporated us not only into the truth of who you are, but into relationship with you and so into relationship with one another. Help us to be, I pray, Lord, a people who come to this table in the knowledge that you are the Lamb, that you are the priest who is sacrificed, that you are the host who is the meal, that you somehow, Lord, are all of these things to us, and we ask, Father God, that as we rest in you, that you would raise us from the dead and show us how to live according to your life. Amen.